What do you really believe will change the world? See, what you believe changes the world will shape how you live, won't it? If you believe that if I'm going to make a difference in the world and I want to put my life towards that, you will find what you think that is and you'll strive for it. Some of us have big dreams and maybe that might be big dreams of public life or big business or something that will make a difference. Some of us don't feel like that's our lane, but perhaps I can change the world if I apply myself in those smaller ways in community service or being part of rallies or movements or groups. When um, Dawn was with us, she was studying social work and she used to say, she had a friend in the social work scene that said, really Dawn, social work is just Jesus' work without the sin bit. And for her friends in social work, that was the way they were going to change the world. That if we apply the principles of social science to the world, we'll make a difference. All of us have perhaps been part of something. Maybe you even weren't part of the movement, but you liked it on Facebook. That idea of changing the world through something, contributing in some way, making a difference. In our time, and it sort of comes and goes with fades and fads, but in our time, it's make poverty history. See, I'm a child of the 80s. So I remember folks like Sting, Boy George, you don't know who that is, you need to Google it, bands getting together and forming a song that was hard to get out of your head, especially at Christmas. That's right, there's a song coming on. Feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time. That song, that movement, Band-Aid, was going to make poverty history, but of course, if you know the history, what happened? It didn't. And so then we did a cover and we did it again recently. I'm not sure which year it was. It wasn't many years ago. Famous singers, actors, singing again. And Make Poverty History is a really, really good thing to do. Like You could not think of it a more noble thing for our world to get behind. But here's what we found with every movement, every desire like this, that are good desires. What happens, friends? It doesn't fix the problem. Not ultimately. We can address things. We can have flood appeals for Rochester that we've had, and it really does help. But all the appeals and the movements, and even as I'm told, the levy banks in the world won't stop the floods next time. It won't stop those things happening again. Do you want to change the world? What we just read seems like an old-time story. Seems like an old time for their history books. Happened to an old couple a long ago. And maybe doesn't seem to have made any difference. But what we just read is the way God works in the world. Not by the flash in the pan. Not by the fancy. Not by requiring lots of likes on Facebook. What God is doing in the world is a patient, fulfilling 
of promises that will change the world forever. God's plan is unfolding through the generations. And how does God do it? Last week, we were in in the episode of the Tower of Babel. And what was humanity doing? We're going to change the world. We're going to build a tower and a city and make a difference and make what else? A name for ourselves. We're going to build a business and an empire. And it's going to be not, well, a certain names tower. It's going to be our names tower. But this tower became something on the plane that was almost like humanity was giving the finger to God and saying, we don't need you. And we're not about you. We're not about your plans in the world. We're not making that important in our lives because we are important. In the context of that, Genesis 11, what happens? God says, I'm going to come down and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick the, this elderly couple, this, this pair of nobodies, and that's how I'm going to change the world. We pick it up in Genesis 11, verse 10. We've got an account, you know, the Bible, if you have one of those, might say an account of Shem, but I think it's more accurate to say which ESV holds here. These are the generations of. Because this is what the world's about. Generations of people. These are the generations of, and here we see the generations of Shem, and some history's repeating itself, and you've got to say, why are we got to go through history again? I was talking to someone yesterday who's a history teacher, and I just mentioned, uh, you know, we need our history teachers. We need our humanities. We need our arts. A society that loses that loses understanding of its context, of itself. And here we need this history here before us. It can seem to us like these are names that are hard to pronounce and names that make no difference to my life. Well, one day perhaps people think that about your name. But these are people with real lives, real desires, Real aches and pains, real frustrations, real sin. Real family problems, real boredom, real suffering. And these folks here are waiting for a real promise. Can you imagine their household time? Perhaps some of them who were perhaps attached to those promises, heard of them, held them dearly. Our our grandparents were told that through the offspring someone would come. But perhaps that story got forgotten. Because by the time we come to the generations of Torah, by the time we meet someone, it seems that these generations are forgetting the promises and all they want to do is build towers on the plain, build their own name. But then we come to verse 27. And in the generations of Torah... There are three sons. Three sons. Just like the three sons of Noah, there are three sons. And these three sons, one of them, his name is Abram. His wife, we read in verse 30, is Sarai. And they get special mention. Why? Because there's sadness in their life. We read that Abram and Sarai... Are barren, they have no children. They couldn't have children. This is the first time in the scriptures that something has happened that's just not meant to be in our world. 
the promise of God was that you would be fruitful and multiply in the world. And now we have a sadness in one little line, a sadness expressed for this couple who are now entering their sunset years and they can't have children. This is the first woman who's described as not being able to conceive. And for them, this would be sad. For their family, it would be strange. Heartache. But for the grace of God, God speaks. And when God speaks, friends, there is hope. And the Lord said to Abram, we pick it up in verse chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now you may have heard of Abram before. Uh, we see more about Abram uh, later on in Genesis. Next year when we get back to Genesis. And we know, of course, that God renames him Abraham. So you know him by Abraham. Uh, this morning um, someone came in and I was writing name tags and uh, I said, um, oh, that's right, um, I've, you've sort of been before, but you're visiting again. What's your name? And that person told me their name. And they said, on a good day, I'm known as this. I said, what well, on a bad day? And, uh, and it's a fun thing, isn't it, names? See, on a good day, my name is Russ. But when it comes to my parents, on a bad day, my name is Russell. So why is there Abram and Abraham? You'd know him as Abraham. We're going to call him Abram throughout today's episode because that's what he's known as because that's so far the promise given to him. But his name is Abram. Now, Abram means father. How much would that be a painful name to have when you don't have children? His name means father. Later, God is going to rename him Abraham, which means father of many. So he's going to be not just Dad, he would get called Big Daddy. But here, he's just Abram, his father, and goes around, and that's what he's known as. And what is Abram like? Up until now, literally, he's a nobody. We don't know anything about him up until now. We just know the family line is born in. And all of a sudden, God is speaking to him. Why him? Why didn't God speak to anyone else? But Abram is more than just a nobody. He is a pagan, idol-worshipping nobody. Now, that throws us a little bit. Because we all think, oh, but he must have been a really good guy for God to speak to him. Like, he must have been godly, waiting on the Lord, waiting in his tent, praying morning, noon, and night to the Lord who is living and true and real. No, it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God was a pagan, so the, the, the Bible says that Abraham was a pagan, idol-worshipping man. Don't believe me? Turn to Joshua 24 verse 2. Joshua 24 verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Joshua's kind of preaching at this point, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, Abraham's dad, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram is off doing his own pagan thing, serving the gods of other nations, doing whatever else that his neighbours are doing, and all of a sudden, God picks him. God chooses him. God says, 
no matter what the condition, irresistibly so, I'm going to choose, I'm going to speak to you, Abel. I'm going to pick you. No merit of your own. God reveals himself to this man because that's what God gets to choose to do. And Abram listens. Now, never before in all of Abram's idol-worshipping life, no matter what Abram lived for, we don't know particularly his idols, maybe the idols of um, the ancient Near East at the time, but we have idols, don't we? Things we live for, things we live for perhaps as ultimately myself, uh, modern society, if you want to know what your idol is, well, don't just take the things off the mantelpiece and say they're my idols and perhaps not just the things of the glory or the gold or whatever it is, just look in the mirror. That's what becomes our idol. But never before had an idol spoken to Abram. Never before had an idol said something. And now God picks him and speaks and gives him promises. And the promises are there, three promises in verses 1, 2 and 3. Simple, simple and clear. Look at verse 1. Here's the first promise. The first promise Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. The first promise is obviously a place. And by the way, to make it even easier, because we love alliteration around here, they're all going to start with P. The first one is a place. The second promise, look at verse 2, and I'll make you a great nation. The second promise is a people. Those two promises alone are wonderful. And then the third promise. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a blessing that is a place and a people Forever. For everyone. For the Gentiles. In the call of Abraham, God is doing something new and creative. He's creating a new people with a new place that's going to last forever. And this promise affects everyone. This is the gospel for the globe. This is not just for Abram. It's not just for his neighbours. This is for everyone All families on the earth shall be blessed. God's word comes to Abram. And what does Abram do with that? He believes. And he leaves. God says, here's the promise. Go. And Abraham goes, okay, I believe you, I go. So Abram went. Verse 4. We see he believes, he goes. Just as the Lord had told him. Abram responds with actions of trust and obey. For God's call on Abram means he must leave everything behind. Before you're going to change the world in God's way of changing the world, you need to see yourself first changed. It's no good just getting your plans and attaching God to them and saying, God, you're going to bless this, right? Do, do what I want to do. You know, I, want to, I want to do this thing over here and you just come and, come and kind of give me some... Sugar dust blessing on the top, please. Make it all happen. Make me prosperous. That is not the way God works. It's not a changed person. 
For you to make a difference in the world, God first needs to make that difference in you. It'd be terrible if, wouldn't it be terrible if the church was trying to proclaim the gospel but was so angry with the world and so cranky with everyone that we just presented the gospel like this. You need to believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. He saves you. Come on, you idiots. I think a lot of our gospel witness looks like that. Whether it's in person or online, that's what it looks like, friends. Why? Because we have not been changed. Because we don't believe in the grace of God that we're extending to others because we think grace is some sort of substance. We think if they just take a dose of that, then they'll stop being annoying to me. That's not good news. That's not grace. It's not the gospel. For the gospel to be really powerful in the world, it needs to be really powerful here. If we're going to have any revival, any awakening, any change in our society... It's going to happen because it starts in us here first. That we would be prayerfully reliant upon God in everything. That we would be genuinely, humbly confessing our sins to one another and being real and honest and here's where I struggle, here's where I need help and not blaming others for my problems. but saying, these are my problems that I need to actually see Jesus do deep work among. We need to see our hearts changed before we see our neighbours changed. Abram is changed. If you want to look at a full exposition of that, go to Romans, because Paul there outlines in depth and detail that Abram is justified by faith. His, his place of trust has moved from idols to now to God. When the Bible tells us ultimately Christ. He, he trusts in the God who speaks and gives grace. Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed and was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by the way, like God was leading, but he, he, just, he just believed God. He didn't check out first, now hang on a minute, if I'm going to believe in this stuff, um, how's my life going to go? Good retirement plan? Like, have you got benefits, packages, um, just, I, just, I, just, I just don't need any suffering. No, no, he just, he just went, he trusted. Now some may say, what incredible faith. Oh, I wish I had your faith, Abraham. I wish I had your faith. Oh, Abram, if only I just had your faith. I've only got my faith. Here's what happens. We treat faith as a substance. As some sort of mystical thing, we, we actually make faith about ourselves and it's misplaced. Faith is not like, you know, you're a half glass full person or a half glass empty person. That's not what faith's about. Faith is not about me. Do you notice Abram? What's his faith about? It's about God. Faith is about the object of your faith, trusting in the promises given to you. You can be a struggler. You can be like the man in Mark's gospel. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Many of us are like that. You can be a struggler, but the point of your struggle is not to say, look deep within yourself, Walt Disney style, and find the magic of faith within you. And then you'll have a happy ever ending. 
That's not what faith is about. Faith is not about looking in yourself. It's looking to Christ. It's trusting in Him, in His promises to you. It's holding on to those promises and reading the Bible because your life depends upon it. That's what faith's about. That's what Abram does. And by the way, Abram is a struggler and a sinner and a sufferer, isn't he? We'll get to know him more later next year, but Abram has all sorts of questions of doubt. Abram has all sorts of struggles and needs his faith boosted by seeing God's promises again and again. And God gives his promises again and again. And Abraham has all sorts of sin. We'll see how it plays out when it comes to the promises of a child. Struggles of belief, decides to do things his own way, goes very badly, very messy, very hurtful for many people. But Abram, all he's got and all you and I've got is God's promises to trust in. And that actually changes us. What is a promise? Have you thought about this? What is a promise? English teachers, what is a promise? Non-English teachers, what is a promise? Parents, what is a promise? People are not parents. People with friends. What is a promise? A promise is a faith-making word. See, if you're given a promise of something that you don't yet have, the promise says you have I guarantee that you'll have this thing in the future and you now, what what have you got to do? You've now got to have faith. You've got to trust in that word. It causes you to have to trust in it. You've got to have faith in those words. Promises are faith-making words. That is all Abram has. He doesn't have a place yet. He doesn't have a people yet. He doesn't see the nations being changed for his life. All he has is a few words from God And it causes him to have to have faith, to trust in that promise. All throughout the book of Genesis now, we're going to see these promises fulfilled in portions. Not quite fully fulfilled yet. Not quite fully realized yet. Not fully real yet. But we've had promises since the beginning. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, the proto-gospel. We've had that promise of a, a serpent crusher coming in through the offspring of the woman. We've had that promise. And throughout Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, throughout life, and even now, we still have promises that are not fully realized yet. And all we have is God's word as a guarantee to trust, to believe, to live by faith. And sometimes as we receive those promises, and Christmas is a time of remembering God's promises, Advent, his first coming, he will return. He is coming back. Is your life shaped around that? Or are you a little bit bored about it? Have other things come into your life to distract you from the reality that Christ is coming back? All we have is his word. Some things do distract us, don't they? Some things too grab for our attention. It might be the device, the screen grabs our attention. It might be just stuff on 
my life is so full, my calendar is so big, I am so tired, grabs my attention. It might be things in the world politically or your own sin. How is God going to make his promises come true now? We see that in this very episode, in verse 6. God has just given promises to Abram, right? Things looking up, all hunky-dory. And then we read verse 6. Abram's travelling, passed through the land of the place of Shechem to the Oak of Moreh, and then we read this. Oh no, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. hang on a minute, this is supposed to be the place, this is the land, this is where I'm going. It's full of these people. This is an obstacle, God. This is going to stop things. It's going to slow it down. The project's going to slow it down. The Canaanites are in Do you see, friends? God has always worked with obstacles in your life. In fact, he even allows them sovereignly. Sometimes we don't understand why they are there. He gives us promises to trust by faith. And yet in the same time, there are obstacles. There are things that happen. How can that be true? How can that come true? But no matter the obstacles that come, God's promises are greater. Do you believe that? Because you can believe that, friends. It is God who is doing something. Notice here, God speaks, God saves, God reveals to Abram and he's revealing us today. God is the one. And what is God doing? What's his plan? In a sentence, it's the title of the sermon. What is he doing? The biggest thing in the world. God is making the curse history. God is making the curse history. Early on in Genesis, five times we see a curse given. And now we see here in Genesis 12, five times, this mention of blessing. God is reversing the curse. He is making the curse history. In the pages of history gone, pages past, God is making the curse history. Not many years ago, I lost my cousin to cancer. She was only a couple of years older than me and had two little children. So she went in and out of remission and she, she, it was years. And that's what we call in our world a fight. We call that a fight with cancer. But in that battle and as she went in and out, we have language for it, we say we sh- she lost. We're at the funeral and we who had all been part of Relay for Life we, people had stickers on their cars, on their utes, all sorts of ways of talking about cancer. We all wholeheartedly agree that we need a cure for cancer. On Amy's side of our family, it's probably a little bit worse. Cancer takes from us. We would like to make cancer history. We need, we would like, we desire, it's a good desire, a cure for cancer. 
But here's what I also noticed at that funeral. Looking around and the grief that we shared. Friends, can we be honest? We need a cure for death. We want to make a difference in the world. But we need to recognise the biggest problem our world has is sin and death. Few of us served in the winter night shelter this year. We did shifts, we went there, we cared for the homeless, we spoke with them, we made friends with them, we got to know them by name, you could meet them down the street, we'd recognise each other. And yes, you could say we need a cure for homelessness, but friends, ultimately we need a cure for sin. We need a cure for the curse. But I can't do it. And you can't do it. But the one who is doing it is now engaging us to believe that he's doing it. To trust him. To ask him in prayer. To rely on him. That he is going to bring an end to sin and death and every manifestation of that curse in our world from cancer to homelessness, from poverty to war, from the way our neighbours treat one another to the way our families treat one another. He is bringing the cure. He is making the curse history. The builders of Babel grasped at it. We will be the ones that do something in our generation to make a name for ourselves. Yet where they raised a tower up to the heavens, God comes down to pick an elderly couple who have no kids and says, I'm going to make the world change through you. Promises that were given in Abraham are now received today and you're part of them, friends, if you're in Christ, if you trust in and your life is in Christ. Abraham was waiting with his wife, Sarai, Sarah, that in their barrenness that they would bear a child. I want you to think about that at Christmas time. That's how God works. We think if God's going to work in the world and if I'm going to work in the world and the church is going to work in the world, we need to be impressive. And we're so tempted, aren't we? Our churches, notice this, something happens and the, the church is there and we put it up on social media. Look what we're doing. There's a great temptation in that, isn't there? And we end up taking all the pictures of ourselves doing this work and forgetting all the people we're helping and serving are just around in utter loss. It's a great danger, I think, in going to places where there are poor, where there is poverty, and organisations or churches make it all about a promotional stream of, look at me, look at me hanging out with these poor kids, I'm showing them my mobile phone. 
I'm, I'm teaching them funny Western phrases and they're wearing my cool baseball cap. I make them feel good because I've come to make them feel good. I think it's a great tragedy that we don't see ourselves as being forgotten to change the world and just serve, just, just love them. You don't need a photo taken of it being done for it to actually have happened. Because how does God work in the world? Through the forgotten, not seen, the small, insignificant. And the same God who picks an elderly, barren couple who can't have kids, friends, picks a young teenage girl, not yet married, from a little tiny town in the middle of nowheresville and says, you're going to carry the saviour of the world. Whose husband is a little bit like, oh, this uh, hmm, uh, Someone told you that? So God has to speak to him too. God speaks to Mary. God speaks to Joseph, gives them promises. These promises come true. We call it Christmas. That's how God works. God works through the Abraham and Sarahs. God works through the Marys and Josephs. God works through the nobodies so that everybody can be blessed. Because that blessing for the nations has a name. He is the offspring. He is Jesus, offspring of Eve, serpent crusher of Genesis 3, the one who will bring brother to love brother, even the Cain and Abel's of our world, who takes the flood of judgment upon himself on the cross, so that today we shall be blessed in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who makes the curse history by becoming the curse for us. Do you see? He's born into the world where we need a cure for death. He runs into death. He runs into the bowels of death and says, that's where I'm going. I'm going to go into that and I'm going to destroy it from inside out. I'm going to defeat it. I'm going to grab it by its throat and I'm going to end this thing. And how am I going to do that one day? Well, he rises again to say all of us will be raised in him. He is the sin crusher, the death defeater. This is how God works. He makes the curse history. How? Because he comes himself humbly with the power of his word to believe, to trust, with grace to save. You see, Abraham didn't think, you know what? I'd really like God to speak to me. I'd like him to bless me and my plans, have a child so that our child can be a blessing to the nations. Abraham didn't design any of this, nor did he deserve it. And neither do we. But this is the grace of God who comes to us in our own idol worship, in our own lives of living for whatever else it is. He comes to us and he says, I'm going to use you, nobody, to serve and see everybody blessed. If you don't call yourself a believer this morning in those promises, so if you've been thinking, well, up until now, I've been looking into this, 
I've dabbled in a little bit of Christianity. I'm just putting my toe in the water. If you are, is that's you? Do you want to see not just the world change? Do you want to see your life changed? Like really changed? Because look at this. Try everything else, it won't work. Try anything else to find joy, not just happiness and an innate smile, but a real everlasting joy. Try anything else to see the world different, changed around you. Try anything else to see your family, your internal struggles and yourself changed. Nothing else has the power of changing lives and changing the world but the gospel of Jesus Christ. This message, these words, to trust in him. Nothing else has that power. It's not about believing me. Believe in Jesus. Check out Jesus. Truly read from Genesis 12 onwards. Look into John's gospel, which connects to Genesis in so many places. We'll be there again next year. Look at Jesus. And if you are a Christian this morning, reforming church, this is us. Do you see how God is changing the world through us? We seem like an insignificant group of people. No offense. Like, let's just take me. There's nothing spectacular, impressive about me. I know, I'm honest. I've got, there's problems, there's there's so many weaknesses, there's nothing impressive about us. And and here, the crowd, this city, we live in 120,000 people. There's nothing impressive about us as a church. It's a nice building, but there's nothing impressive about us. But God picks the unimpressive. God picks the nobodies and says, that's how I'm going to bless the world. That's how I'm going to change the world. Through nobodies who simply believe his promise. And for us who believe, what do we do? We now go and make disciples of the nations. So the nation's going to be blessed. And how do you make disciples of the nations? What do you do? You simply get the words given to Abram. You get the words given to Abram. You open them with a family member or a friend. And say, would you like to read the Bible together? It's pretty simple, actually, exercise. It's not hard because they make these things called Bibles. And um, they're really easy. They're on devices too. Devices can be distracting because all of a sudden someone's ding, 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 ding. This one doesn't have other apps. And so you can just simply open it over a coffee with time to focus. Many of us don't have time, but if you had half an hour or even an hour, and you had time with your family or your friends, and if it's as simple as that, most of your friends are in this church to start with, you can make more friends out in the world, that's true, but if you've only got friends here, and that's where it starts, that's a great starting spot, why don't you just start with a friend from reforming? Hey, would you like to fortnightly read the Bible? And we're going to make disciples of one another. We're going to encourage one another as we hear God's promises together. It's going to light us up and change our lives. And then pray for one another. We think, well, is God really going to change the world? He did it with an elderly couple by his word 4,000 years ago. He can do it again. Let's pray, Will. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. It's life-giving. It's faith-making. The promises you give us in the gospel and the good news of Jesus, that gospel fulfilled where all nations will be blessed through him because Jesus took the curse for us. Jesus is making the curse history. And so we pray as, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 16, Now to him who is able to strengthen us, according to the gospel preached of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of you, eternal God, bringing about that obedience of faith. O oh, to you, only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.